scripture for this morning is from 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 11, or through 11, 1, and it can be found on page 6 of your bulletin. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in the one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the accumulation of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we, who are many, are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of, are, of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For what is my freedom from being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something that I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I, to try, even as I try to please everyone in every way. 
For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Okay. We are continuing today in our study of the book of Corinthians, this letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth in ancient Greece. And if you are new to our church, we've been working through this really since January and will continue through the very beginning of June, basically moving about chapter by chapter. So a joy here to finally land in chapter 10 and the very beginning of chapter 11. So we'll take a look at this section of the letter, but first let's pause and let's pray together. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would be present and we ask that you would fill our minds and our hearts, uh, removing every kind of resistance and filling us with faith and insight and wisdom. We need to see you as you are. We need to see ourselves as we are. Give us faith. Give us um, what we need to hear. Every one of us, there, there's a lot going on in life. Uh, Every one of us is facing a different kind of challenge. For some of us, the topic at hand might not even seem relevant at first. But Jesus, all of your truth connects with our lives in some way. So show us how it's all connected together. Bring these words to bear on our lives, every person, and very personally. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you daydream about? For those of you that might have forgotten, daydreaming is what we all used to do before we got smartphones. <laughs> what do you daydream about? You know, that thing on your mind, or that thing that your mind wanders to when you're sitting in the car, or maybe riding the metro, or maybe just waiting in line at Safeway. You know, it might be a vacation maybe, that you've been dying to take, or maybe one that's coming up. Maybe it might be your bank statement. That's what pops into your head because, you know, things have been tight. Or maybe it's a person. Uh, maybe it's a romantic interest. Or maybe another kind of person that you've perhaps been fantasizing about, uh, the low-maintenance roommate or low-maintenance spouse or child. Sometimes... These daydreams of ours, they can tell us a little bit about our circumstances, right? An indicator of what's going on in our lives. That's why it's on our minds. Sometimes they tell us a little bit about our personalities, you know, the things that I just naturally love. But here's one more thing that our daydreams often reveal, and that's this. The idols of our hearts. Idolatry. Idolatry, that's what this passage is about. You see this in verse 14 when the apostle pleads with the Corinthian Christians these words, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And likewise, in verse 7, we're told, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, referring to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 32 when they worshipped the golden calf instead of the true God. 
Let me give you a little bit of a background on how Paul addresses this. For three chapters now, chapter 8 and chapter 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul has been addressing a debate that has risen up in the Corinthian church. Was it okay for Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols? If you've been with us over the last several weeks, you know that we've been exploring that question in different ways and angles over the last couple of chapters of our study. Was it okay for Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols in ancient Corinth? Because their meat markets were usually connected to pagan temples. That meant that the cut of sirloin that you bought at the market typically at some point had been offered up to pagan deities like Zeus or Poseidon or Aphrodite. And so the question comes up, is it okay to eat that steak, yes or no? And here's Paul's answer. We've seen it across these different chapters. Here's his answer. Is it okay, yes and no? Actually, he gives us four different kinds of situations, four different situation-specific answers. Number one, he says, go ahead and eat. Look at verse 25. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For, and then he quotes here Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All things are made by God. In other words, all things are good. Idols aren't real deities. There aren't real competing gods in the world. There's only one true God. So go ahead and eat. That's one response he gives. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But number two, he also says, but love your brother and sister more than you love your right to eat. Look at verse 23. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. This is what Paul addressed in chapter 8, you may remember if you were with us. If you're eating this food sacrificed to idols, encourages a fellow Christian to violate their own conscience, meaning that they eat the meat even though they think it's wrong, even though it's not wrong, but they think it's wrong, and they say, well, maybe it doesn't matter if I do wrong things, and so let me just go ahead and eat. Well, then you've harmed them spiritually. Paul says, don't eat out of love for your Christian brother or sister. Verse 24 says this, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. There are times when it benefits others that you ought to not eat. Go ahead and eat, but love your brothers and sisters more than you love your right to eat. But number three, but do not attend and eat meat at a sacrificial feast in a pagan temple. Don't just dive headlong into an actual religious worship ceremony with this food offered up to these pagan deities. Why, Paul says in this section here, that not unlike how the Lord's Supper, which we will take in a few minutes, how that's a true participation in Christ, that you are actually having intimate contact and even communion with Jesus, which is where we get that word from, saying taking communion. In the same way, eating at a pagan feast in a pagan temple is actually spiritual participation with communion with 
demonic forces that are lying behind that pagan worship. Paul says that in verse 20, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. Lots of questions might surround that. We can talk about that more during our Q&A. But there's a fourth response that Paul gives, a fourth scenario, and that's this, according to verses 27 through 30. Paul raises this question of, well, what do you do if you were invited over to a person's home, a person that doesn't share your faith? Well, what do you do when they offer up food? If an unbeliever invites you to a meal at their home, by all means, Paul says, eat whatever is put before you. Go ahead and eat. But if at that meal it is explicitly mentioned in conversation that the meat has been sacrificed to idols, then do not eat it. Why? To avoid appearing like you condone your neighbor's worship of pagan idols. In other words, think about them. Help them to come to know the true God. Protect their conscience. Inform their understanding of God, even by your own actions, even by your not eating, that they might not confuse you for being a polytheistic worshiper of all different kinds of gods, even though you bear the name of Jesus. Love your neighbor more than you love your food. All kinds of scenarios that Paul is putting before the people, all different ways in which he's encouraging the Corinthians to love others more than they love themselves. And it's in this context that Paul is warning the Corinthian Christians and warning us about idolatry. And maybe already one of you say to yourselves, well, you know, I don't really bow down to little figurines and the quiet of my room, or I haven't personally attended any religious ceremonies or services in the temples of idols lately, so this must not be relevant to me. But it is, and it's relevant to all of us, because the Bible consistently talks about a different kind of idolatry, what we might describe as a spiritual idolatry. Four lessons in this passage for us. Let's take a look at them. Four lessons about this spiritual idolatry that's just so practical and helpful in understanding the dynamics of our soul. Number one, well, lesson number one, what is an idol? An idol is anything that's more important to you than God. An idol is anything that's more important to you than God. Verse 6, Paul refers to these different stories of the Israelites from the Old Testament, drawn from Exodus chapter 32 and the book of Numbers. And he says in verse 6, Now these things occurred as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And he uses this curious word in the ancient language here that was translated in our passage in the English, setting our hearts on things. It's actually a word in the ancient Greek that can be rendered uh, over-desiring. Not just desiring, but over-desiring something. You see, idolatry is carrying in your heart an inordinate desire. 
It's when wants start to become needs. When I would like to have in our hearts becomes I must have. So what do you need? I mean, what do you really need? And I'm not just talking about the formal answer that you might give in a religious or Christian quiz. Not just talking about your surface beliefs. I'm talking about the the real practical reality in your hearts. What is it that you really cling to? Is it uh, your vision of well-behaved children? Uh, Whether if you're a parent or maybe a teacher. Was that an amen? I don't know what that was over here. (laughs) I think it was a meh. What do you really need? Is it control over your circumstances? Is it financial freedom or security? Is it the approval of my peers? I need them to believe that I'm competent. I need them to believe that I'm cool. Here's another way of detecting the idols of your heart. This is what it sounds like in our souls If I only had that, then I'll be more lovable. If I only had that, then I'll be more secure. Then I'll be more happy. Then I'll feel important. What is your if only? What is that in your heart? Is it a job? Is it a relationship? Is it money? Here's another shot. Another way to diagnose the idols of your heart is to pay attention to your fears. What's your greatest nightmare? What are you most afraid of losing? Is it a relationship? Is it your home, the roof over your head? Is it your reputation? What are you most afraid of losing? And as you sort through these questions, and I encourage you to sort through them even now, but even as you return home or are in conversation with people in community, to talk honestly about the things that really have gripped your heart, or rather the things that your heart has really gripped. And the thing that you need to notice as you're sorting through them, even as we've talked about those different questions that help us think through our hearts, the thing to notice is that Some of the best blessings in life are the things that become idols in our hearts. They don't have to be bad things. They don't have to be terrible things. In fact, one of the reasons why we begin to bow our knees and worship them is because they're so good. Because they're gifts. Your children and your family are good things. Your work and your job and your career are good things given to you by God. Money is a good thing given to you by God. When we talk about idolatry, don't mistake it for thinking that we're talking about bad things that you need to get rid of in your lives. In fact, that's exactly why these idols are so seductive. Because we take the good things of God and we make them ultimate things. Uh, We take the good things that God has gifted and blessed us with and we make them God-like things to us. Things that we're asking to give to us what God alone can give. 
ultimate security, ultimate happiness, ultimate meaning and significance. Your job can't give you that. Your children can't reward you with that. That relationship will never be that for you, and yet we grip and we desire and we over-desire. Our hearts become, as John Calvin has put it, an idol factory, and we bow our knees. We have in our hearts what you might describe as comfort idolatry or beauty idolatry. For some of us, it's independence idolatry, the free me. For other of us, it's political idolatry. It's why you're so mad right now. For others, it's actually religion idolatry, race idolatry, why you can't get along with people that are different from yourself, romantic dreams idolatry, all these different ways in which our hearts our imaginations, our daydreams can get consumed even with the good things of life. And we replace God himself with these things and make them the center of our identities. Where do you detect idolatry in your life? Lesson number two. No one is immune to the dangers of idolatry. No one is immune. This is actually the, the whole point of that first paragraph in this passage, starting in the middle of verse 1. It says this, Our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness, and Paul there uses the word all five times in the passage. All of the Israelites, all of God's people enjoyed spiritual blessing after spiritual blessing, but this did not make them automatically immune to the seductive power of idolatry. Beware of pride and complacency. But I'm a Christian. How could I be susceptible to that? But I say that I know and love God. How can there be idols in my heart? So there's been an outbreak of lice in my daughter's school. And so several weeks ago, we found ourselves having to keep checking our daughter's head on a regular basis. Really unpleasant stuff, right? And yet it was interesting to see the way in which as much attention I was giving to my daughter several weeks ago, uh, I would still spend time with her and play and lie with her and hang and do all these things in a way that was uh, maybe ill-advised perhaps, right? Not paying attention to the way in which I could so easily myself pick up these little critters in my own head. No one's going to want to talk to me after this time now, right? You know? But it's amazing how much during that time I could find myself almost saying to myself, not really articulating it, but feeling this way, there's no way I'm going to get it. There's no way. It can't happen to me. Isn't this how we can often find ourselves uh, even proud or seeing ourselves as a moral or spiritual exception 
to the general rule of our spiritual vulnerability. Idolatry, it can't happen to me. Uh, you know, falling in that way or loving something more than God, that can't happen to me. Paul is saying it can. History has shown it can. That all the blessings being poured out upon the Israelites, that even in the midst of that, they fell into the worst of kinds of idolatry. Paul is warning against pride and complacency, and that's why in verse 12 it says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's not a call to insecurity in a way that crumbles your faith in Christ and his availability to you. It's simply a call to humility, to stand trembling before the prospect and possibility, indeed, the reality of just how vulnerable we are to the seductive power of the idols of our hearts. And I think one of the things that's important, too, is to remember that there are, as I mentioned earlier, religious versions of idols, too. You can cling on with idolatrous desire and commitment, even your religious involvement, your attendance in church, how much you serve, even how much you pray, the way that we can turn our morality, being good, into something that we feel like, if I lose this, then I'm not secure, then I won't be happy, then God can't love me. Here's a question. What's that one prayer, if God didn't come through and answer it, that you would then run away from God? What does that tell you? It tells you that you may be praying, and you may be praying a lot, but you're not really praying for love of God. You're praying to get something out of him, and that other thing that you really want is your real God. Even prayer can be a kind of idolatry of heart. And so we humbly stand before God, knowing that we need to be careful that we don't fall. No one is immune to the dangers of idolatry. Lesson number two. Lesson number three Idolatry makes you self-centered. Idolatry makes us self-centered. Verse 32 says this, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Verse 23 tells us, the Corinthians were saying, I have the right to do anything I want. And Paul is trying to tell them with respect to this question about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Stop thinking of yourself. Think about your brother. Think about your neighbor. Think about anyone else besides you, you see, because idolatry makes you self-absorbed. Idolatry is the worship of other things that we've just talked about, but what we have to understand is at its core, it boils down to a worship of yourself. Because you get to decide the rules. You get to decide what's important. You get to decide, well, everything. The theologian Wolfhart Pannenberg once said this, sin is an autonomy of the will that puts the self in the center and uses everything else as a means to the self as an end. And what happens in the dynamics of idolatry is, hey, if I worship money, I will do everything I can to get that, even if it means trampling over you to get it. If I worship significance, I will do everything to use you as a means to make me feel more significant. Idolatry always leads you to trample over people 
or to use other people as a means, as even a stepping stone, a stomping stone, in order to get what I believe that idol must give me. In other words, idolatry is what always leads to exploitation of other people. Do you see marks of that in your own life? The way in which your commitment to things other than God to make you feel more secure, to make you feel more happy, to make you feel more comfortable, to make you feel more significant is leading you to just wipe people out in front of you. The way in which you are killing those around you, maybe in your family, maybe those closest to you, in pursuit of this thing that I must have. Lesson number four. That last point leads right into this. Lesson number four, idolatry leads to destruction. Verses six through ten, that paragraph there, gives examples of all the ways the Israelites, in fact, faced judgment from God for their idolatry. We're told that many of them even faced death. Maybe someone here says, well, that just sounds kind of extreme, death. You know, I, I, I might not... I might be in love with my work, maybe just a little bit too much. Okay, I might concede that, or maybe I might be too dependent upon this unhealthy relationship. But that's not going to kill me. That's not going to kill me. Are you so sure? Are you sure? Listen to how Psalm 115 talks about idolatry. Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Those who trust in idols will become like them. See, here's the nature of how the human heart was designed by God. You always are conformed into the image of the one into whose face you most gaze. If you are constantly longing for, pursuing, and gazing at the idols of success or the idols of relationship or the idols of happiness, you will soon in due time become like them, so to speak, having mouths but without being able to speak, having eyes but without being able to see, having ears but not being able to hear, having hands but not being able to feel. Idolatry dehumanizes you. The other day, Paula and I uh, found ourselves watching Beauty and the Beast. You, you like how I worded that, Pat, you know, we found ourselves. I don't know how this happened. No, we wanted to watch it. <laughs> Beauty and the Beast, and some of you may know, I mean, a wonderful story, one of Paula's favorites. See, I'm doing that again. One of Paula's favorites here, right? No, a great movie. Some of, you know, the most endearing characters in that movie are Lumiere and Mrs. Potts and Cogsworth, and these are... Uh, those who were once people, but having been cast under a spell, they were turned into 
talking, yeah, still talking, still people like clocks and candles and, and pots, but the whole uh, plot of the story, of course, it revolves around a potential romance of Belle and the Beast, but of course there's also this side story or related story of what's going to happen to these other characters because if time ran out, they would then talk no more. Uh, the, the people clocks and the people pots and the people candles and the people chairs and the people dressers would soon, soon turn into inanimate objects, uh, just pots and chairs and candles. And there's almost a sense in which you can see this trajectory in the dynamics of idolatry. Some of us are consumed with almost this addictive need for the idols of our hearts, and you're halfway there. You're, you're a person, but you're also sort of a clock or a candle or a pot. And this is what idolatry does is it sort of strips away your soul and it turns your heart into mush and it hardens your capacity to respond to people and to God in such a way that you yourself in due time almost become an inanimate object, a clock and a pot piece of wood almost. You are so in pursuit of your work that in due time that's all you are is just you've become yourself work and no longer a vibrant, joyful, God-loving and God-defined human being. Idolatry dehumanizes you. It leads to all kinds of Breakdown emotionally and spiritually and even physically. Uh, you know, the idolatry of your career so often, you know this, I know this personally, leads to burnout. Because you're sacrificing just about everything on the altar of career success. Idolatry of relationships often lead to a kind of codependence where I need you and you need me in a way that starts to de- destroy your heart and eventually even your capacity to be a friend The American Psychological Association has begun to identify politics-related stress and anxiety disorders. I think we can spiritually call that a form of the destructiveness of political idolatry. And you know, far too many of us know, the idolatry of body image, I need to look a certain way, often leads to choices that are just simply medically ill-advised. You might not be literally dead and you might not be bitten by poisonous snakes, but you may have a spiritual poison that's coursing through your soul and that may very well be destroying you. Are you aware of that? Do you see that in your heart? Do you see your need for God? Do you see your need for healing out of our addictive condition of worshiping the idols of our heart? So what do we do? Is there any hope? Uh, How do we get out of this? How do you dismantle the idols of our hearts? Well, we're going to move through this quickly, but the passage gives us a couple of things. Uh, First, remember, remember the blood of Christ. Remember the blood of Christ. We see this in verse 16, as not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of of Christ and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ and even as we're about to take communion will you remember 
that Christ has died for idolaters like you and me. This is good news. What this means is not only, well, let me not word it that way. First, Jesus forgives you. Jesus has forgiven all of us of our idolatry, which means of our loving every other thing in this world more than we love him. Jesus forgives us for dismantling his rightful place in our lives as the king and instead erecting all these other kings and queens in our lives, most especially the one with our own name on it, the throne of ourselves. But more than that, remember the blood of Christ which brings you into participation with, fellowship with, contact with, communion with Jesus himself. And the point that I'm getting at is that you have access to Jesus, his life in you, which means you've got power to change. You've got power to change. You don't have to be worshiping other idols. You can be restored unto true worship of Christ. You can change, dear friends. There is hope for us to be free from the addictive, seductive powers of the idols of our hearts, which relates to this word on temptation that we find in verse 13, that you have power to resist the temptation to bow to these idols. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, which means you can't say, I'm the only one that has to bear this. No, 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 no. you got a whole community of idolaters, recovering idolaters right here. You can turn to your friend, to your left, to your right. You might even be surprised to find someone that says, I know exactly what you're talking about. I struggle in exactly the ways that you struggle. You're not the only one. It is the struggles that you go through are common to mankind. They're most especially common to the one who came in the flesh of mankind, though he himself was God. Jesus bore your temptations. Jesus felt every pressure to give in, though he didn't. You can go to him for sympathy and care and love in your times of temptation. And don't you know, as Paul says in this wonderful verse, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, which doesn't mean that it's not hard. And it doesn't mean that it's not going to bring you to your knees, to the end of yourself. But he does say this, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God is faithful. He will not leave you hanging. He will give you grace to persevere, to flee idolatry, to run from these temptations to make idols out of these things, which of course raises this question, do you really want to get out? Do you really want out? Are you really willing to go the way that's beyond human strength, which is to go to the way of Christ, which begins with repentance and ends with deep, rich, restored faith in Christ, which brings me to my final point. That the greatest healer of our idolatry is restored worship of Jesus. Verse 31, so whatever you eat, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. To grow out of our temptations to idolatry, we need to not just say no, no, no. We need to say yes to God and his glory. 
The heart of idolatry is esteeming and glorifying all these other things, even ourselves. What we need to do is return to a genuine worship of God, to see him in all of his greatness, to bow our knees to him because we've seen no other love like the love that we find in Jesus. Because we found no other mercy and quickness to forgive like we found in the mercy of Christ. Because we found no more durable truth than the truth that we found in Jesus that gives us the confidence and the security to stand up and say that I've been made new. I've been made whole. I've been made more fully human by the grace of Jesus set free from my false worship, my pithy worship, my deformed worship of all these other things and now restored to true worship of God in Christ. The way that we most grow out of our terrible idolatries is to grow in seeing Jesus in all things and in all things, whether in eating or drinking and whatever we do to do it for the glory of God in Christ. To worship him all over again. So the big question, of course, is what do you see of Jesus today? Do you see his love? Do you see his goodness? Do you see his generosity? Do you see his patience? Do you see his character? Do you see his cross? Do you see his resurrection? Because here's the call. Flee from idolatry. But more importantly, flee to Jesus. Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we want you. We need you. Set us free from these addictive, seductive loves in our hearts that are false loves, that are destructive loves, that are self-loves. And help us to learn to see your love for us, that we might love you rightly, to worship you rightly, and to serve our neighbor, to love those around us. Jesus, come and heal our hearts. Thank you in advance that you're doing that give you praise. We give you worship that you deserve. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.